The book of Haggai is actually, we can see that there's four distinct messages in this book. And that's why I'm preaching four sermons on it in the next four weeks. And um, the first message is our passage in the whole of chapter one. But before we look at that, um, it's good and it makes sense to look at the background of Haggai because it only makes sense, this book of Haggai, with the background, the historical background in mind. So we're starting by having a brief look at that. And if you're interested in dates, there should be a timeline up behind me now. And, um, yeah, just have a look at it while I'm going through that. So imagine the scene. We're in Jerusalem. After the Babylonian exile, there's a remnant of people, and they have returned to Jerusalem to their city that was destroyed, and it, it has been almost two generations since that happened. Um, and we read in verse 1, we are in the second year of King Darius. That means we're in the year 520 B.C., and it's the first day of the month. That means it's the end of the harvest season. Most of the hard work is already done, and it's a public worship day. And so the people in Jerusalem, they gather around the temple site. But compared to the old days, there are only a few. Because only a few of them have returned from the Babylonian exile. And some of the old people among that crowd, they must have still remembered these glorious times before the exile. But most of them, they never saw Jerusalem before. Most of them, they were born in exile, and most people only heard their grandparents when they were talking to them about that land flowing with milk and honey. But what they found when they came back out of exile was very different. A land that was uncultivated for years, for decades, and it didn't look like God's promised land at all, the land that they heard of. And it's been 18 years since that Persian king, Cyrus, issued a decree in 538 B.C., 18 years since God worked in that uh, pagan king so that his people could go home and rebuild their temple. 18 years, but the work of the temple has hardly started. In fact, the people standing there on this worship day, they're facing a temple that is still in ruin. So imagine the scene, Haggai the prophet is standing there at the entrance of an unfinished temple, God's dwelling point of the past in ruin, and the crowd is facing him, listening to God's word. And in this crowd, there are also two leaders who led them out of Israel. The first one is the civil leader, Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, who became the governor of Judah. And the second one is Joshua. He's a religious leader, and he became the high priest. And both of them are addressed directly by Haggai, because they are the representatives of these people, of this remnant, because they had no king. And I'm wondering, in this moment, what must have gone through their minds? Because they returned with the command of God to rebuild this temple. And they started that project, they built an altar, and they laid the foundation of the temple. They worked for two years on it, but then they suddenly stopped. Why? Because soon after they started, the work problems started to arise. They were discouraged. 
They had no king, no army to protect them. They had a high priest, yes, but they had no temple. And who knows how long it would take to finish that project. But more importantly, God's presence wasn't with them. It wasn't like that first exodus, you remember, from Egypt, when they left Egypt, and that cloud of pillar, uh, that, 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 the pillar of fire and a cloud went before them. No, no. This exodus, if you want to call it that way, from Babylon back into the promised land was different. God wasn't with them. His presence has left long ago, and you can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 10, if you like. And on top of all that, they were now facing opposition. Opposition from the local people around them, from the Samaritans. They were against the building of the temple. And we can read about that in the book of Ezra. And by the way, I I encourage you to read the book of Ezra alongside Haggai if you want to, because it gives us the background to Haggai. So let me read to you from chapter 4, verse 4. Then these people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and to frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The second year of Darius, that's our date in Haggai, right? 520 BC. That means God's people who were supposed to rebuild the temple, they stopped for 15 years. They were discouraged and afraid by the people around them, and so they stopped the work on the temple. 15 years, that's a long time. 15 years of neglecting God's work, God's will. Fifteen years of shifting their priorities to something else. That's the situation. That's the historical background Haggai is speaking into. And so today we will be looking at three points of Haggai's first message in chapter 1. First, the wrong priorities of these people. Second, the punishment that resulted from it. And third, the right priorities that God called them to. Overall, Haggai and his message is a message of hope and encouragement to the people because that's what they needed. But chapter 1 is different. Before the encouragement, there's a rebuke. There's a conviction of sin. There's a message from God that shows their iniquities and a call and a command to repentance, to stop with excuses and to turn back to God and to live and work for him. So buckle up, because it's a challenging message, and come with me to verse 2. Here in verse 2, God repeats what these people have to say as their excuse. Their excuse for not building the temple. They say, the time has not yet come to build, to rebuild the Lord's house. The time has not yet come. How often have you heard that before? Well, if you say, if we say, the time, it's not the right time for something, that normally means something else has higher priority, right? And so for these people to say, it's not the right time to rebuild the temple, that means in their minds, it is the right time. 
but for something else. Something was more important for them. But what could this be? What could have a higher priority than to do God's work? The answer is nothing. But the reality is that we will always find an excuse. And in verses 3 and 4, Haggai is exposing this excuse. Have a look at it. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? That's a message that must have pierced their heart. They put their own selfish interests above God's interests. Their priority was their own comfort, their own houses. And they were not just any houses. Have a look again. They built themselves paneled houses. That word paneled is normally only used for God's temple or for the king's palace. So it's an indication of luxury. You see, they spent 15 years building themselves luxurious and elegant mansions. While God's temple was laid waste and ruined, unroofed and unfinished. You see, God wasn't even second place in their list of priorities. No, no, they, they completely abandoned this project of building God's temple. The dwelling place of God's presence from the old time. And, you know, they could see this. This ruin, they probably looked straight at it. While Haggai was speaking with them. How convicting this must have been. And in verse 9 we read. You expected much. But see it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why declares the Lord Almighty? Because my house which remains a ruin. Because of my house which remains a ruin. While each of you is busy with your own house. Again, these words, you expected much. In Hebrew, they literally mean you turned your faces. These people, they turned their faces away from God. And in their greed, they looked for much, but much for themselves. But it turned out to be little. Now, let me ask you this. Is your face turned towards God? Is he what you desire? Or is it something else? What is it, that great thing, that stuff that we are looking for, that's supposed to make us happy? If we turn our faces away from God, what is it that is so great compared to God? If we turn our faces from our creator, the creator of the universe, what shall it be that is greater than he? The Almighty God in His majesty, His greatness, His holiness, His righteousness, compared to Him, everything will be little. Nothing created can ever be greater than our Creator. In fact, everything will be worthless compared to Him. So why should you turn your face away, your attention, your focus, your time, your life, away from the most beautiful the most excellent thing that there is, God, our creator. And how dare we say to him, it's not time, it's not the right time for you yet. There's something else that's more important. 
So what are the excuses that you use in your life? What is the stuff that is more important for you? If you are a born-again Christian, God's priorities should always be your priorities. But if you are honest and if I'm honest, that is not always the case, right? And why is that so? It's because of sin. The sin within our flesh. As Christians, there is a war going on inside of us. And Paul says that in Romans chapter 7. And these sinful desires, they always want to have the first place, the first priorities in our lives. That's why we need to examine ourselves. Are we still on the right track? And yes, it's the same for these people in Haggai's time. They have given in to these selfish desires. They are far off track. That's why God reminds them in our passage twice to do what? Have a look at verse 5 and 7. The NIV says, give careful thought to your ways. God says, look around you and inside of you. Don't you see what's happening? A literal translation here would be, set your heart on your ways. It's a heart issue. Their heart's desires were misplaced and needed to be redirected. Their priorities needed to be reshaped. Sin is always a hard issue. And we need God to work in us, to call us to repentance, not just in our conversion. No, we need it continually in our life as Christians because we live by his grace and by faith. You see, these people, they thought they had an excuse But we cannot lie to God. God sees straight into our hearts. God knows if you are willing to serve him, if you are willing to build his kingdom, his church, his people, if you want to put him first in your life, because he knows your heart. So we have seen the first point, the wrong priorities. Now the second point, in this we will see the punishment for it. You know, there is that experiment um, with the frog in the pot. I don't know if you heard about it. Um, it's a pot which is filled with water, and the frog sits in there, and the water is slowly turned up, the water temperature. And it's getting hotter and hotter. And you can see the air bubbles coming up. But the frog doesn't realize it, because it's doing. it's done so slowly. And eventually the frog boils, and he dies. You see, that's similar um, to the people in Haggai. They turned away from God for 15 years. And slowly, over time, they got stuck in their own comfort, in their elegant mansions, in self-deception and excuses of putting God lower and lower in their priorities. And eventually, they forgot about God altogether. They abandoned that project of building his temple. But what was rising... At the same time was God's anger and his punishment. And it all seems as if these people were blind to it, like the frog in the pot. I mean, they just came out of exile. They just returned and um, they just had to look around them to see that something was completely and terribly going wrong. 
Because have a look at verse 6. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Everything that they did in their greed came to nothing. By turning their faces away from God, they didn't gain, but actually lost. They labored with little result. In fact, to the point that even the bare minimum wasn't there. Food, drink, clothing. They didn't realize that they were under God's judgment already. But it's getting worse. Have a look at verse 10. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth is crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and all the labor of your hands. God cursed everything. That's like in Genesis 3, where he cursed Adam and Eve. Everything these people had and everything they would have in the future, all is cursed by God. And the word drought here in verse 11, it's actually the same word that is used in verse 9 for the temple, which lies in ruins, in a drought and in desolation. You see, the people, they left the temple in ruin, and their punishment is what? Their land and everything it produces, all the labor, the livestock, it all becomes like the temple, a wasteland. But not only that, the people themselves are included in this curse. Do you see that in verse 11? And I I remind you, these were God's people, a remnant of Israel. So why are they punished by God? Because every loving father will discipline his child. And because they, of all people, should have known better. They just came out of exile. They knew about God's judgment for sins. They are God's people. They are to live holy lives, set apart for God in reverence and awe. God should always be their highest priority. They are the ones who memorized the Shema, the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let me read them to you. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. But instead, they were selfish. They loved themselves, and they neglected God. You see, in the end, the ruined temple becomes a symbol of their spiritual state. And it's a big warning, especially for us, As Christians, the people of God, we are to examine ourselves if God's priorities are our priorities. Because if they are not, our lives becomes a spiritual desert. Without God, we are spiritually ruined because as Christians, we need our food. You need God's word. You need prayer. That's how we have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's how we are nurtured by him. Have you put God first in your life? Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. That's a prayer we just prayed. May this prayer, this beautiful prayer, be never be just a lip service for us. 
And the world around us, what, what's that? If we look the, at the world around us, what do we see? We see diseases. We see lies, deceptions, temptations everywhere. God is even mocked by unbelievers. People are turning their faces away from God for their own gain. Where is the priority for God in our world? Our world is like the frog in the pot, and it's getting hotter. And if you're an unbeliever and you're sitting here today, let me address you directly for a moment. Because you're in danger, and it would be unloving for me and unkind not to warn you. Because with every sin in your life, you're kindling, you're stirring up that fire of God, that anger, that wrath of God underneath you. You might not be aware of it, but it's getting hotter. And in the end, yes, there is a place which is called hell. It's a reality. And ignoring God's wrath and hell doesn't make it go away. You see, God is punishing sin. And if he wouldn't do that, he wouldn't be just. Because God's justice and his holiness, they demand the punishment and the consequences for sin. But the good news is this. It doesn't have to be that way. Because God is also merciful and there's grace. And even though we are all guilty and we all deserve hell, God is a God who saves his people. And he did that through Jesus Christ, who came into this world to save sinners like you and me. Jesus came to take the punishment that we deserve. And he died on the cross and shed his blood for us. You see, and it wasn't just physical pain. That was the whole wrath of God that he took upon it. And he died. But he also rose again and is now exalted at the right hand of God. So that if you believe in him, you will be saved and your sins will be forgiven. So I urge you, run to Christ, take refuge in him. This world around us and our hearts inside of us, they tell us plainly that there is a God. And we're all in need of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we need his grace because we can't save ourselves. And the people in Haggai's time, they were also desperate, in a desperate need of a Savior. They were God's people, yes, but they needed a serious redirection of their priorities. And this brings us to our last point for today. We have seen the wrong priorities, we have seen the punishment for it, and now we will see how God can reshape our priorities. How does it happen that these people suddenly turn back to God? Well, the first thing that happens, we've seen it already. God speaks to them. And he convicts them of their sins, and then two times he commands them to do what? To set your hearts on your way. And in verse 8, he commands them, go up. Bring the wood from the mountains. Rebuild my house. In other words, it's God's word that convicts them. And it's his word that gives them priority, new priorities, right priorities. It's only by the power of God's word and through the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching through Haggai 
that they are called to repentance, to change their ways, to return to a life for God, to deny themselves and to put first their lives, uh, to put, put him first in their lives and to work for God. And then what? What happens after this call, this command from God? Come with me and have a look at verses 12 to 14 before we finish. Then the Rubabil, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai. Because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the people to the, to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jezedek, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. You see what happens? God calls, and they all obey. They all repent. Just imagine this would happen every time, every Sunday in church. The shepherd is calling his sheep, and they hear his voice, and they all obey it. Haggai came to these people not to speak for himself. No, they realized he spoke with authority. They realized it, was his, it wasn't his word. No, it was the very word of God that came to them. The word that pierced the heart. The word that lays bare our iniquities. The word that puts holy fear, reverence, and awe for God in our hearts. How much they must have felt that. Being without God for, in his presence for so long. Being without hearing the voice of their shepherd. Being without a temple, without a king, without security. How much it must have comforted them to hear these four words. I am with you. Now finally, they have assurance. The God of their fathers, Yahweh, the God of the universe, is with them. And the irony is their circumstances haven't really changed much. They are still without a king, without an army, without a temple. But God is with them. And that made all the difference. Because who could be against them if God is for them? These are the words that gave them assurance and security, and nothing could stop them now. And so chapter 1 ends not just with the hearing of God's word. No, God's word had an impact on them. God stirred them up. That's what happens when God's word is preached. It comes with power of the Holy Spirit. It comes with the spirit that works in you. There's a call to action, a call and to live a life for God and a call to work for God. And so they came and began the work on the temple and they finished it in a record time of just five years. And all this happened by God's grace. And for what? Why did God initiate this change in their hearts? The answer is in verse 8 and in the little bit that I left out. Have a look at it. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. As Christians, God's priority becomes our priority. Why? 
because we are ought to live a life that pleases God, that's glorifying to God. It's not that God needs anything from us. He is holy and perfect in and of himself. Now, that's not the point. The point is that we are made for this. That's why we exist. That's the very purpose of our life, you see. The Westminster Catechism puts it perfectly. What is the chief aim, the highest purpose of man? Answer, the chief and highest purpose of man is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. So to close, let me ask you, is that the life that you are living right now? Are you living for the glory of God? Where is God in your list of priorities right now? Maybe you're one of these people who like New Year's resolutions. Um, If so, revisit them. Have a look at them. And maybe rethink them in light of what you heard today. Because after all, you have heard the same message that these people in Haggai's time have heard. The same call from God to make him your highest priority for his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this challenging message that you brought to us this morning. And Father, we pray, would you continue to work in us so that through the power of your Holy Spirit, this message would not just be a message that was challenging to hear, but would it be a message, Father, that stirs us up? Would it be a message where you, through your Holy Spirit, are working in us and changing us, molding us more into the likeness of Christ, who came to save sinners and who also obeyed the will of his Father perfectly. Father, we pray this not for our own, but we pray this for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.